0: Welcome, everyone, to the first full day of this May 2020, the year of COVID, the, years, the beginning of the years of COVID. Session on transmitting the light. There's a book called Transmission of the Light, but transmitting the light implies the actual process, the ongoing process of transmitting the light of our original mind. Thank you all, all who are practicing at home, which is not always easy, and all who are practicing here together. Thank you for supporting each other's practice and for heeding the homing beacon that I spoke of last night that called you to join this session. We practice in the good times to be ready for the difficult times. We have entered a difficult time. The primary difficulties of this time of COVID are like flashing neon arrows pointing us straight back to the truth that we have been reading about in Zen books for years, but have never fully realized. What a blessing. to realize there's further to go, to have our life experience show that to us. The truth of impermanence, one of the three fundamental truths of Buddhism. Okay, impermanence, yeah, but not at this pace and not for this long. When will I be able to go shopping on a whim and buy something I don't really need? to try to end my suffering? When will I be able to get a new tattoo to try to end my suffering? Or a haircut? Or my nails done? Or a new pair of shoes? When will I lose my fear of having someone near me cough? Of becoming ill and dying? When will I be able to see and hug the people I love? Most of us grew up without personal experience of the kind of time that we're going through, personal experience of epidemics, of rapidly mounting deaths, in cities where we have friends or relatives without the experience of quarantine, or food rationing, or lines of very thin people waiting for handouts of food, without the experience of personal sacrifice for a higher cause, a larger cause than our own life, the wishes of our own life. But our personal ancestors, our parents, And certainly our grandparents and great-grandparents experienced all of these difficulties. Do we have their bravery? Do we have their determination? Their willingness to sacrifice for the good of others or for a higher good? I've spoken before about being born towards the end of World War II and personally experiencing food rationing, gasoline rationing. I was very young, but my parents had coupons. While in Japan, as Kazanahashi told us, they had coupons for rice, but there was no rice. So they dug for roots in the forest at the end of World War II. I had the experience of my family running out of money at the end of the month. And my mother would apologize because we had cheese on to- melted cheese on toast, cheese sauce on toast for dinner. I loved it and I was surrounded by love, so it didn't make any difference. I had the experience of the quarantining of my classmates for scarlet fever and of all children during the polio epidemics in the summer. Not having, not having the experience that we're having now of not having what we want makes the experience of having quite vivid and joyful of what we actually have. That's why I'm asking us all to do gratitude practice at night, to shift the mind's tendency towards looking at what's lacking, to shift the mind to what we actually have, Not having makes the experience of having quite vivid and joyful. Here at the monastery, we have designated shoppers who go out once or twice a week wearing masks and gloves. And this week, two of them who were out, one for the first time, returned with bright eyes and told me, it's amazing out there. I said, what's amazing out there? They said, people. There are people out there. I talked to the ladies at the post office, and they are so nice. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's what we discover when we don't have. That's one reason we enter the voluntary restriction of sashin each month, to simplify our lives drastically, to eliminate distractions to the mind, to just sit, to just walk, to just eat to just look, to just talk at and just listen to the ladies at the post office, to clarify and empty out the mind, and then to find simple joy in meeting people fresh, fresh, moment by moment, fresh. Ayakema said, In a meditation retreat, nothing else matters except the clarity and wholesomeness of your own mind. This means leaving all daily preoccupations aside and focusing strictly on the wonderful freedom the Buddha's teaching and practice can provide. The wonderful freedom. We've all touched it or we wouldn't be here. I'm hearing from my senior students and have been experiencing myself an unusual phenomenon that I'm calling COVID mind. It's a dullness to mental acuity, a resistance of the mind to concentration and to mindful attention. I mentioned this phenomenon last night when I was talking about picking beans and realizing that my mind was dull. In pondering this phenomenon, I think it originates in the inability of the mind to hold on to past and future as strenuously as it has in the past. Our sense of time... Our continually constructed sense of self depends upon the mind holding a narrative of past history and a planned future. And this seems to have been altered for many people. This virus was only given a name by the International Committee on the Taxonomy of Viruses of the World Health Organization. Imagine you could have a job naming viruses. I think there are 200 COVID viruses, something like that, that have been found in bats. So this proves actually the interconnectedness of all life because this was transmitted, this infection from bats to humans and then spread. So we are intimately connected now with bats. We are sharing some of the RNA that they sheltered in their bodies. So it was given a name 140 days ago. Our awareness of the danger of this pandemic is much shorter. We entered self-quarantine here on March 14th, which is 66 days ago. But 66 days doesn't compute with how the week seemed to be flowing by. On the news, I saw somebody saying, I can't remember what day this is, but I know it ends in a Y. (laughs) Which is another example of not noticing that all days of the week end in Y. Hogan and I used to go square dancing every Monday evening. It stopped only 66 days ago, but I can barely remember what it was. I glimpsed my square dance clothes in the closet when I passed by and they seemed to belong to another person, another lifetime. When our minds try to run down the deeply cut mind ruts of this is what I do on Mondays, Or, this is what I will do in June. The breaks are applied to the cart of mind by by COVID. We are blocked by, we are blocked by a venerable practice in Zen. Don't know mind. A venerable practice which we are practicing more acutely now. This is what I will do in, I don't know. The governor said I could do this. A court in Baker County said, no, she can't do that. The Supreme Court of Oregon said, yes, she can do that. What are the implications for me? For the first time, we're forced to experience a more naked life of uncertainty. A more naked experience of uncertainty Will we have to wear masks through the fall, the winter, into the next year? Will we have to go out of quarantine and into quarantine again? Keep our masks at hand and gloves? We don't know. A more naked life of uncertainty and a more vivid experience of what has been hiding behind the relentless activity of our minds and bodies. A more vivid experience of dukkha, of basic unsatisfactoriness. Unsatisfactoriness barely and only temporarily lessened by a favorite chocolate bar. It's very interesting to watch when we reach Food is an example. Reach for food to satisfy or dull that sense of dissatisfaction, basic dissatisfaction. To just eat slowly and watch. One bite, does that relieve it? Second bite? Third bite? And when does the sense of pleasure, temporarily overwhelming, A deeper sense of unsatisfactoriness. When do they meet and cross? And when does unsatisfactoriness emerge again? Unsatisfactoriness barely and only temporarily lessened by a chocolate bar or by baking and eating a new dessert or a Zoom meeting with family or friends that is just a facsimile of intimacy or the 10th online movie. COVID has put us snakes in a bamboo tube. And someday we may be very grateful because it is showing us exactly, exactly where we need to work. Ayakema again. If the whole universe can be found in our own body and mind, this is just where we need to make our inquiries. We all have the answers within ourselves. We just have not gotten in touch with them yet. The potential of finding the truth within requires faith in ourselves. Faith that there is a path to end not only our acute suffering, but our more hidden suffering and faith in ourselves that we can follow that path and find a gradual lessening of our own suffering and ultimately the dissolution of that suffering someday we may someday we may be very grateful for this time of covid this time to notice in more detail when we aren't really paying attention, as I did planting beans. To bring sharply mindful attention to everything that makes up this constructed self, this constructed reality. Ayakema, when the eye sees, it simply registers color and shape. All the rest takes place in the mind. All the rest takes place in neurons that fire in the brain. And the mind puts the shape and the colors and the sounds and the touches and the temperatures and the pressures, and puts them together and calls them, my eyelashes, my lips, my chest, my spine, my fingers, my toes. Oh no, I can't separate the toes. And yet there are people who play cards with their toes, people born with no hands, who can distinguish each toe and move it independently and deal cards with their toes and uncork a bottle of wine and pour the wine into a glass with their toes and who can play guitar with their toes. So we begin to realize what is possible. What is possible when we really examine what is within what we call our body, heart and mind, and what seems to be without. COVID gives us a chance to go back to the basics, to the Eightfold Path. Right view, something is off kilter. I am suffering. This is exactly the truth the Buddha spoke of. Right action, there is something I can do about this. I need to practice to see through this mind-created difficulty. Right energy, I need to spend time. I'll go to seshin. I need to notice and gently pull the mind back when it wanders. Right speech. In Sashin, this is silence. As much as you can maintain those who are practicing at home. When the mind settles, when inner quiet appears, it begins to remove the thick fog of thought that obscures our experience of Paramita, underlying universal truths, transformative truths. Right mindfulness and right concentration, I will pay closer and closer attention to the rich tapestry constantly woven of my basic experiences body sensations, feelings and thoughts, moment after moment. Ayakema, in meditation we have to give ourselves totally, with no holding back. Whatever meditation subject we have chosen, we must become immersed in it. I find that the four foundations of mindfulness, going back to basics, At times of stress, or at times when we realize the mind is foggy, the four foundations of mindfulness which I'm leading each morning, which you can ignore or pick up, are my own foundational morning practice, and are a huge support. Because mind wanders off from body during the night for hours, and we get up in the morning and they're not united, The evidence of that is how we stumble around, until we bring them together. And if we do the Four Foundations, it assists in that process. Ayakema, again, there is this difference between one who knows and one who practices. The one who knows may understand the words and concepts, but the one who practices knows only one thing namely, to become that truth. Words are a utilitarian means not only for communication, but also to solidify ideas. That's why words can never reveal the truth. Only personal experience can. We can attain our experiences through realizing what's happening within and why it is as it is. This means that we combine watchfulness with inquiry as to why we're thinking, saying, and reacting the way we do. Unless we use our mind in this way, meditation will be an on-again, off-again affair and will remain quite difficult. When meditation doesn't bring joy, most people are quite happy to forget about it. This sashin is about the ancestors, about the activity of transmitting the light about those men and women who gave their lives that we might have a more abundant and satisfying life. We all are here because of the ancestors. There's a Zen saying, those who have descendants are called ancestors. Like most Zen Sings, it seems very simple and obvious at first. But when we really look at it, it has implications for our lives. Those who have descendants are called ancestors. The fact that we are sitting here together is the result of our ancestors sitting. It is the precise way that their practice continues. Our bodies and minds are the conduit through which the ancestors' practice flows on to the next generation. And they will need it probably more than we do. Because once COVID ends, this particular pandemic ends, and we see both the benefit and difficulties this time of COVID has produced, we are still faced with climate change and the prediction of new kinds of pandemics and of severe economic difficulties. Those who are born after us, those who are young now, will need clarity of mind and kindness of heart even more than we do now. During this session, Dharma holder Kisei and Dharma teacher Jogan and I will be giving talks on five of our ancestors, both men and women. Originally I had intended to lead off with my Zumi Roshi, my root teacher. We just celebrated his, the 25th anniversary of his death both here at the monastery and also with the White Plum teachers. But I discovered that we need more time to figure out how to play a video of him teaching, because I would like you all to see his face and hear him teaching. Thus today I would like to tell you more about the great teacher Aya Kema. Ayakema was born in 1923 and died in 1997 at age 74 years. I first learned about her about 30 years ago at a meeting of Western Buddhist teachers with His Holiness the Dalai Lama in Dharamsala. There I met two teachers, a man and a woman, who had studied with her. And I was very impressed with their dedication to practice and their clarity of mind and their clarity about basic Dharma principles. If you're investigating a new teacher, examine the product. Examine their descendants. Why would we add a Theravada teacher to our lineage? We chant Ayakema's name in our lineage. Because she was a very, very courageous woman who was determined to settle the question of life and death and also because she was proactive in providing opportunities for other women to practice Buddhism. She was truly a pioneer. Ayakema had a life that acquainted her well with the fundamental issue of human suffering, as well as the realities of impermanence and no fixed self. She was born in Berlin, Germany in 1923 to Jewish parents. This was the time the Nazi party was gaining strength. When she was five years old, a kindergartner, her parents sent her on a transport of 200 Jewish children to Glasgow, Scotland. Those of you who have a child around five years of age, can you imagine what that was like? When we were teaching marimba in the elementary school in here in I my children are grown, they're adults now, and I saw a classroom of kindergartners of five-year-olds come out into the hall and I looked at them and I thought, they shouldn't be allowed out. Mm-hmm. They looked so sweet and vulnerable and innocent. So she was sent by herself to Glasgow, Scotland, and then two years later when she was seven years old, she traveled to Shanghai to join her parents who had fled there when they sent her to Scotland. When the Japanese invaded Shanghai, she and her parents were put in a prisoner of war camp in the Shanghai Ghetto. Her father died there five days before the war ended. She was 22. She had spent 15 years in Shanghai and many of them in a prisoner of war camp. She soon married for the first time and had her first child. Then she and her husband and her child, her family, fled again when the People's Liberation Army was trying to take Shanghai. They fled to California, living both in San Diego and Los Angeles, where she had her second child. Her intense interest in spiritual practice was an interest that her husband did not share. He was 17 years older than she, and they divorced. This dedication to finding the truth led her to Mexico to study the Essenes in an Essene community. The Essenes were a Jewish sect that dated back to the time of Jesus, and many historians feel that they may have influenced both Jesus and later Christian monastic life. And you'll see the similarities to the monastic life that has come to us from India through China and Japan and Korea to here. Some of their practices would be familiar to those of you who have lived at a monastery. They practice communal living, communal ownership of property, They elected their leaders whom they promised to obey as long as they were their leaders. They prayed before eating together. And they undertook what we would call the precept of not unleashing anger, but seeking its source. They carried weapons only as necessary for potential self-defense against robbers when they traveled. Those weapons being knives daggers. They actively practiced spreading peace and devoted themselves to charity. In the Essene community Aya Kema married for the second time and the entire family became lifelong vegetarians. The family traveled extensively including to South America, New Zealand, and Pakistan. Everywhere she went she took her burning desire to find answers to suffering. She studied Zen at San Francisco Zen Center and at Tassajara. She studied Theravada in Burma, where she developed an interest in learning and then ultimately teaching the jhanas. She studied in Thailand and Sri Lanka, and then she went to Australia, where she founded a forest monastery with one of her teachers, Fra Kantipalo, as the abbot. She was then 55 years old. She was determined to become ordained, but it was not possible for women to become fully ordained in the Theravada tradition that she ended up studying in and teaching in. So she received ordination in a Chinese Foguang Shan order, the first Western woman to be fully ordained. She was then 65. Foguang Shan is a very interesting movement. It has over 3,500 monastics and over 170 centers around the world. It has. It is famous for its dedication to education and charitable outreach. They maintain many schools, elementary through high school, uh, and orphanages, a number of free colleges and universities, libraries, translation centers, publishing houses, retirement homes, cemeteries, drug rehab programs in prisons, wildlife conservation areas, their own TV station, and free mobile medical clinics serving remote villages and overseas relief. When we were visiting a teacher that Hogan had met in Taiwan, we were in the hotel, and I always turn on the television to see what's on television in different countries. And there were several Buddhist channels, full-time, with masters teaching and chanting and so on, all day long. And one of them, and it may have been the Foguan Shan order, I didn't know about that order at the time, they talked about a Buddhist relief effort to America. And they uh, had established a free clinic in Boston to do acupuncture, Chinese herbs, and Western medicine in a poor area of Boston. And it was amazing to me because when I was growing up in Christian tradition we, we had relief efforts you know, missionaries sent to China to establish free clinics and educational institutions and orphanages and so on. And now the Chinese were returning the favor to the poor people of America. Isn't that wonderful? The year before her ordination, she helped organize the first International Conference of Buddhist Women, which became the Sakya International Association of Buddhist Women. And she established a convent for Buddhist nuns on an island off the coast of Sri Lanka. When she was 66 years old, she returned to Germany and began teaching at Buddha House in Munich. She had been suffering without letting most people know from breast cancer for 10 years, and she decided to have a mastectomy. She was five weeks in the hospital because she became very close to dying, an experience that she found quite positive. This is her description There were two days in the hospital when I had that feeling that the energy was leaving through the feet, actually. There was a collapse of the whole system. Losing one's life energy is actually a very pleasant state because there's less self-assertion. I mean, you haven't got the energy to assert yourself. So things are more acceptable. Everything is acceptable. It's fine the way it is. One could say that action of dying, if there's no resistance, is extremely pleasant. That seemed to be less and less life energy within the body, and I was just relaxing into that. I was perfectly willing to let it happen, but then these doctors came around. My blood pressure just went way down, way down, I mean almost to not happening. And that's when you lose all your energy. It was a very interesting experience. And now I can see it's extremely pleasant. It's just letting go and disappearing. And it's very nice. So that time when the doctors came around, she was revived. And she died four years later at Buddha House, where her ashes are kept in a stupa. And I would like to finish by reading you some of her teachings. Why do we feel uncomfortable so often? Nobody feels at ease in an untidy, messy household. Or likewise, when there are unwholesome aspects arising in our inner household, such as resistances, dislikes, fears, feeling threatened, worries about our past or future. How can that be comfortable? Only when we realize that we are the manufacturers of our own discomforts is there any opening for change. If we still believe that other people or situations or the lack of appreciation, praise, love, or opportunities are at fault. We haven't started our practice yet. We must arrive at a starting point. If one runs a race, one has to find the starting line. We have to find a point of departure for this practice, which is found within our own inner being. Only those people who are determined to grow in spirituality will find that fundamental basis within, from which inner growth can be generated. The whole person becomes involved and not just for the few hours of meditation or scattered moments of remembrance. The whole of us works the whole time at it. There must be no lip service, it has to be real. All discomfort within us, all unhappiness, Fear or worry has been created by us. Only then is the field wide open for change. That moment of acceptance and realization changes our whole world because now we can do something about our lives. Until then, we are helpless victims. We cannot change the world or other people. We can hardly even change the behavior of our dog. But we can change ourselves. As long as we only believe this, but don't do it, we haven't started practice. We can even sit in meditation, but no results will show in our lives. Last night, I forgot to ask. You've come to Sashin, but you have to ask yourself, I have to ask myself, do I really want to change? And if so, in what areas? Do I really want to change? It starts with inner softness, acceptance, and pliability. We become open to people and situations around us. If we retain our own ideas and viewpoints, continually liking or disliking the same areas of life, we are not sensitive to our inner reactions. Softness, acceptance, and sensitivity may result in a great deal of pain, but that's part of practice. However, because it's painful, it's often rejected. Surely that is the wrong way of dealing with ourselves. If we break a leg and don't want to have it set because that is painful, it would mean limping for the rest of our lives. That is the equivalent to looking for a lifelong anesthetic which dulls all awareness and keeps us in a semi-awake state. Because all of us have the six roots of greed, hate, and delusion, and the opposites of generosity, love, and wisdom, we are constantly manifesting one of these. Love and hate, greed and generosity, are usually equally distributed in most people. Delusion, however, is the underlying factor of all of our mental emotional activities, and wisdom is rare. We are not actually hating anyone because the person is hateful, but rather because our inner hate is looking for an outlet. We are not actually hating anyone because the person is hateful, but rather because our inner hate is looking for for an outlet. Please consider this in reading the news. This is one of the great absurdities of humanity, and only a very few people are aware of the simple fact, this simple fact that could change our whole life. When we hate, we don't do so because there's anything worth hating or disliking, but only because hate wants to manifest itself. The one who becomes unhappy in the first instance is the one who hates. This negative emotion is like a barb that we would like to use to hurt others, but first pricks the one who is holding on to it. This is a law of nature and so simple that most people overlook it completely. We go through life having a distinct demarcation line. On the right, everything we like, and on the left, everything we dislike. Certain qualities and characteristics are always either good or bad, in our opinion. Sometimes it does not work out quite that way, and we hate to shift our demarcation line. It's not a comfortable way of living. One is a person who cannot be happy because it's impossible to find only in people, only people and things that one likes. Since there is no perfection in existence, there is no hope for happiness in such a mode of reacting. It's amazing that most people have not woken up to this fact. Many have spoken and written about it, but it, maintains, it remains a matter of spiritual practice. To, re, to recapitulate, first we know that we are the doer. We are responsible for whatever is arising within us. Second, we can change because we realize that the dislikes, hates, fears, worries, and anxieties are creating unhappiness for us. Change necessitates substitution. Here we can appreciate the training in meditation where we are constantly called upon to substitute being attentive to the breath for our thinking. For one who doesn't meditate, who doesn't meditate, the substitution of one thought for another is an unknown factor. To exchange all unwholesome thought for a wholesome thought is an almost unbelievable idea for people who do not know anything about spiritual practice. We are prone to believe what we are thinking that anybody else is thinking the same has never occurred to us. To be the only one with such a thought among billions of inhabitants is in an absurdity ra- rarely noticed. I would, I would change this a bit, that we're convinced that everyone should think the way we think. And to think that our thought is the correct thought among billions of thoughts is an absurdity rarely noticed. The next important step in our maturing process is the recognition of our own dukkha, our own suffering. This seems so simple that one wonders why it is often difficult to follow through with it. If we have dukkha, like everybody does, we are in the first instance inclined to blame someone or something. We can start with people and continue with situations and include our sense contacts what we hear, see, taste, touch, and smell. The possibilities for blame are infinite. But when we indulge in them, we are refusing our first insight, namely that we ourselves are responsible. If we hold fast to that understanding, then we begin to to see dukkha in a different way, namely as part and parcel of being human, as a universal, and not a personal truth. However, when we are disliking our painful feelings and are not willing to accept the fact that our own mind is the culprit, then we will look for a scapegoat. This is a very popular pastime, and possible scapegoats are innumerable. When we remember that we're causing our own dukkha, we are back to spiritual practice. As we dislike our own dukkha, hate arises at the same time, which results in double dukkha. So please think of yourself reading the news and how this is manifesting in ourselves and in people around the world. A very popular pastime is to look for scapegoats. As we dislike our own dukkha, hate arises at the same time, which results in double dukkha. Using insight into self-made dukkha as our next step, we have a chance of changing the discomfort within from dislike and hate to at least acceptance. Eventually, a feeling of being at ease with oneself arises, without which meditation cannot flourish. These are fundamental aspects of ourselves that we need to investigate and experience. Spiritual practice involves one's whole being and the exploration of our reactions, developing sensitivity and vulnerability to others, and being able to roll with the punches. We begin to realize that there are certain necessary learning situations in our lives. And if we don't make use of them, we will get the same ones over and over again. If we look back for a moment, we may be able to see identical situations having arisen many times. They'll continue to do so for many lifetimes, unless we change. Spiritual practice is not just sitting on a pillow, but more an opening of the mind to what is actually going on inside. If that opening is closed the moment we stand up, then we haven't really been meditating successfully. It is not so much how long we can attend to the breath or the sensations, but rather how aware and awake we become. Then we can use that awareness in our everyday reactions and thinking processes. There is the Cartesian view, I think, therefore I am. Actually, it's the other way around. I am, therefore I think. Unless we can get some kind of order into our thoughts, and the emotional reactions that follow the thinking process, our mind will constantly play havoc with our inner household. The realization of where our dukkha comes from must be followed by the understanding that disliking it will not make it go away. Only letting go of wanting makes dukkha disappear, which means unequivocal acceptance. Accepting oneself results in being able to accept others. The difficulty with other people is that they present a mirror in which we can see our own mistakes. How useful it is to have such a mirror. When we live with others, we can see ourselves as if it were a mirror image. And eventually, we learn to be together like milk and water, which completely blend. It is up to each one of us to blend. If we wait for others to do it, we're not practicing. This is a difficult undertaking, but also a very important one. Eventually, we will create the inner comfort to expand our consciousness and awareness to universality. The world at large is very busy, and we get caught up in extraneous matters. The world inside is also very busy but we can do something about that. We can quiet it down to see more clearly. The way of spiritual practice is nothing special, just our whole body and mind. So please practice with whole body and mind. When body objects, our mind wanders off. Gently, patiently return to the practice without letting the mind evaluate the practice. I said to this community when we opened this session, don't let the mind evaluate, move on. If you fell asleep during the entire last period of sitting, just notice I was sleeping during the last period of sitting. Renew your energy, however best you can do that and go into the next period with determination to see through suffering, to transform suffering into benefit. Right now there are many worries about the economy, but our spiritual practice is the very best investment we can make. The very best investment we can make. It brings dividends beyond the mind's capacity to evaluate or know or measure. So please continue your practice with determination and kindness. Thank you.